You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. Push the water table lopsided. Used to be free, now of course you will feed. Cause all things for they know that they roll across the sea. Man, you gotta cook with it, baby, clean with it. That's right. When it's hot, summertime, you fiend for it. You gotta put it in the iron you steaming with. That's right. what they dress wounds and treat disease. Welcome back to the Piper Carter Podcast. We are blessed to have another week here with you. Uh, am joined by our illustrious co-host. What's up, Brittany? Peace Pipe. What's going on? How are you, Dave? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Good. Hey, Tara. I'm amazing. How are you? Doing pretty good, man. Yeah, so guess what? We are so honored. We have a special guest with us today. The amazing, dynamic uh, Monica Lewis-Patrick of We the People of Detroit. Welcome, Mama Monica. Peace and blessings, everyone. It's so amazing to be here. Yes. How's everyone? Good. Yeah, pretty good. Um, So, um, Deja, tell us about um, uh, the week in the life at the optometrist. Oh, it was fine. Um, Kind of busy because we're starting to get all of the glasses that people ordered over Christmas, but... Yeah, it was just a busy week. I'm glad I'm not there. I've been off since Thursday. And I'm off tomorrow for MLK Day. Woohoo. <laughs> 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 so, um, so uh, Brittany, how's your week been? What you been up to? Uh, the week was good. Work just worked the nine to five. And then uh, Friday, I was at a Kibalon village. I made dough and yesterday we had a uh we had a martin luther king day pizza event we charged ten dollars for a box of pizza and uh went well we sold out actually uh the event was saturday and then shout out to gmac we he set up an online ordering system and we were sold out by seven o'clock friday night so it made the kitchen flow wow. really easy saturday so all we had to do was just fulfill the order so we had a rush at 11 we we made 20 pies uh at 11 we made 17 at uh two and then our we had a little break and then our last batch of orders was at six and we did about like 10 pizzas or so so and uh yeah it was good it was a it was really good i had a lot of help had a lot of fun and was over on the east side which is my favorite part of the city and that was the weekend mm-hmm. wow Brittany, that, that was, was so awesome. cool Brittany. Well, yeah, um, yeah, she was all over in social media and everything. I know you was on social media. <laughs> you don't even do social media. Well, y'all told me every once in a while it was okay for me to show my face, so I, I guess I did it. Yeah, you did yeah it was nice to see you. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah cool video. Yeah. And I like seeing the kids. How about you? Oh, me. Yeah, the kids were dope. They, I, I taught. Yeah, how was your weekend? Um, my weekend has been pretty great. Y'all know. Um. I start, I'm going to tell y'all what I've been doing. It's a secret, but I guess not a secret if I'm about to say it on the podcast. <laughs> so over the last year, I've been working on um, my voice, on um, finding my voice and strengthening my voice and using my voice. And so I've been working on my throat chakra. So I've been mm-hmm. oils and rubbing on my throat chakra and doing all these exercises to just like be in my voice. And because um, I realized that like, 
through my childhood and just different circumstances that I had struggled with standing in my power. Things like, you know, saying no or um, worried about, you know, um, offending people and this kind of thing. And I know I don't have a malicious heart. And so just really, um, you know, challenging myself to not be fearful to uh, stand in my power and use my voice. And so part of one of my new years that I said I was going to get voice lessons. And so I started my voice lessons last week and um, I started like, you know, incorporating, like using the voice lessons to really um, connect my voice in my body and then just like be super present in my body, you know, because I had realized that through um, learning or just um, I'm, I'm, I'm using the word learning, but I'm saying in the unconscious, like learning, I had learned to like leave my body and um, not be present. Right. And so through in, in trauma. And so through that, I had been developed a practice unconsciously of doing that. And so through the singing, as I'm reconnecting with my body, I had some moments of what they would call clarity where I just did some deep sobbing because I had um, had some memories of trauma, of childhood trauma, of being shut down. And so um, I just realized that, you know, I'm just being vulnerable now, you know, to use my voice to share anybody that may be listening that, you know, people always tell me I'm so confident, but it's not that I'm confident. I move through my fears, but um, in, in learning to move through my fears, I had, an, I had developed a practice of not even being present. And I, um, I realized that um, in this moment, I need to really just connect with myself and be present and sit with that and in my strength. And um, I'm not there yet. I've taken a first step, but um, these voice lessons have really helped me to realize um, the joy that um, that I feel through singing. And so um, just want to share that with y'all or anybody listening. So that's what my week has been like. A lot of uh, deep sobbing. And, and, and you, you're not telling them what the vocal coach told you about your voice. So let's talk about how your voice sounds. You're talking about the healing, right? Let's talk about that. Well, she said, I have a very beautiful, unique voice. And she said, it's interesting that the people who don't want to make music like myself have such a beautiful voice. You know, the people that come to her and the people that shouldn't be making music are the ones that come to her for support. <laughs> she, she's a Grammy award. Uh, She's a Grammy Award winning uh, vocal uh, uh, vocalist. She's here in nice. Detroit. Um, shout out to Antea Burkett. She's from a um, gospel mm. family. And um, I mean, she's she's a songwriter. She's written for Beyonce and the list goes on and on. She was signed to Rodney Jerkins. So she's that deal. So just um, yeah. getting that nurturing from her. She's an amazing black woman. Um, and, and, and I admire her. And just to have her um tell me that i was like okay because she was like girl you know you're gonna record something i was just like uh-uh you <laughs> now we go now you crazy you talking crazy but she's like nah she's like trust me you're gonna record something we're gonna get you there i said okay so um i'm just gonna get my nerves up and then i thought about britney and deja and i thought about how i'm pushing deja to do this beat tape with her uh, music and and Britney to do this um mm -hmm. you know this uh rapping so I'm like okay if I'm gonna push them then I guess I gotta push myself so um that's what my week has been like 
And so uh, what, what about you, Mama Monica? What's your week been like? Uh, my week has been amazing. Uh, it has been emotional and uh, enlightening. I had a couple of meetings with some young folks uh, who are building uh, around the Great Lakes, around water issues. And so we're working with a team out of Flint with the Flint Development Center that uh, they're actually advancing in Flint, but also partnering with us and some other leaders around the Great Lakes to teach young people how to test water, understand the science of water. Uh, was also very excited to know that our partners in Toledo, uh, Toledo Junction are in the process or at least the last phases of getting their building up. And they're doing amazing, innovative, uh, kind of creative things with young people uh, where they are working, the young people are working with them during the day in the green and blue infrastructure programs that they've developed. But then they've also created a micro enterprise hub where they are resourcing young people to start their own businesses. So we were able to meet the Wright brothers who have started their own bike repair company. And they were successful in getting a $5,000 grant, getting an attorney, setting up their five uh, their LLC. And so just to see young entrepreneurs is especially uh, Black young people moving in this vein was just so encouraging to my spirit. I can tell you, I, I felt like I had been to church, uh, much like this experience thing, uh, the experience that I'm having right now with all of you, just drawing from the energy mm. and innovation and creativity. So my week is popping. <laughs> yeah, right, the youth, that's what's yeah, up. The, this, this this generation, these new generations, they really are inspiring. You know what I mean? They really are learning from the past and history and really trying to move us forward. And it's, it's, it's really exciting. Just hearing you talk about your perspective of being around the youth was, is exciting, you know, so. Oh, that's my life's blood. Piper say we, we, we high five and get excited. Because uh, <laughs> I know if Pipe's around, it's going to be some young people around. I hear you. I love it. Well, you know what we're going to do? Because we want to get all of this juiciness information from you. So um, we want to get into this uh, this tech report, um, Jaira. What, what, what's going on in the tech world? Oh, there's some new. Well, okay, I'll say as far as um, tech, oh, there's always something new. But there's some new news that was just in, that I saw um, recently that Apple um, has brought their uh, what, what should I say? Their they brought themselves into Detroit, so they have like a new program called uh, Developer Academy, and they chose Detroit as to be one of the cities where they want to um, start this like they call it racial justice um and they just want to have it to where more cities like um detroit um have opportunity to have young people um of like a color young young colored or young black people uh you know have knowledge in coding and uh developing like apps and things like that so they have like academy that you can um, go to. I think it's going to be partnered with Michigan State, um, and it's going to be a 30-day introductory program, or you can do a 10- to 12-month program for people who want to do it longer. Um, I feel like it's going to be a, it's going to be a really great thing that they're doing for everyone. 
Um, also, it's going to be free. That's another thing. So all you have to do is just sign up. And um, they have, it says a thousand students per year, but I feel like it's going to be more, I think it's more than a thousand that can be involved. I'm not sure. I, I need to get more details on it, but I just wanted to let everyone know about it because it's something that I feel a lot of people should get into because not many people are tech savvy. So it'll be cool to see um, them, you know, being able to teach people who aren't that knowledgeable in that field and, you know, uh, gain, help them gain more knowledge and something that they might turn into a career. So thank you for that, Jaira. Um, Deja, I know you also looked at this. Um, do you um, have um, some things to add? No, Jaira summed it up pretty well. I didn't know it would be through Michigan State. I didn't see that article, so that's good to know. I just well, so since it's going to be through the through Michigan State, will it be like through a digital program? Do you know, or will it be in person once COVID is figured out? Um, they said for now it's going to be digital, like it's going to be online. And um, when things clear up, that they're going to have like a space where everyone that's involved with this program can come to and, you know, have like an actual area where they can uh, meet the instructors in person and work with them hands on with the, like, you know, coding or whatever yeah. uh, they go into. Um, Brittany, do you I have to make it more accessible? That's cool. Yeah, no. What yeah. were you saying, Pipe? I was just asking if you had questions about the Apple uh, program, Apple program in Detroit. Uh, yeah. When does it start? Let's start there. I didn't hear that part. So it said it starts. It was well. They didn't give a specific date. I myself, because I want to get involved with it myself. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I. I figured. I'm trying to get yeah. involved. Um, but as of right now, they announced it. I see that they announced it, but I haven't seen any like um, where to log in, where to like start it. Um, my assumptions is that you might have to go up to Michigan State themselves and you know ask some people about it if they're you okay. know like. But I'm not really too sure. I gotta get more information on it. Yeah, I uh, I'm a huge. I think we're all we've all said that we're all tech fans, right? You know, I love I love Apple. I've loved Apple for forever. I'm not necessarily on the the. I'm not a, a binge fan of Apple. I don't need every Apple product, but I will say since uh, the passing of Steve Jobs, the innovation from phone to phone, I wouldn't say it's lacking, but I don't. You know, I would say that it's it hasn't been the. There, nothing has surprised me. Nothing has made me want to spend a thousand dollars. I mean, pipe, you will get a new phone, and because you're always taking pictures, right? You'll spend a thousand dollars on a phone so you can edit, you can do all these things on your phone. You're, you know, Apple has engaged with the with the camera stuff, but other than that, they haven't to me really have put out a product that makes me want to spend up to thousands of dollars. So it'll just be interesting to see they've tapped into the Detroit market. Uh, which I think is brilliant of Apple. I think the youth have most of, if not all the, the great tech ideas. So, you know, I hope that they build, they help build Detroit as well as they're going to be, you know, yeah, they'll be developing their young minds, but they're also going to be coming up with some innovation. They're going to be around some of the smartest kids in the country. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Um, Mama Monica, do you have any questions for Jaira or Deja about um, Apple? 
coming to Detroit to do this incubator for, for youth? Well, I was just really interested in it because um, as we've seen with, with many of these corporate entities, uh, their intentions are not always honorable. And right now it's very fashionable to be black and be woke. Uh, but I'll be interested in seeing their long-term investment because sometimes they'll use our babies as window dressing to sort of clean up uh, a bad past or uh, some bad corporate uh, actions that they've taken. And so we know that uh, they never do these things in Detroit without another agenda in terms of either being able to market to our community more effectively or being able to use black faces to sort of camouflage uh, other political agendas in the city. Oh, thank you, Mama, I love that. Um, so I don't know, Jairo or Deja, did you have any more to add? Uh, not really, I mean, I, I think I pretty much said everything um, about what I wanted to talk about. Jaira, can I add something to your list as you're investigating and sort of keeping up with technology? Um, there was a yes. recent conversation I had with an engineer who shared with me that right now through the Great Lakes Water Authority, that they're actually increasing uh, their commitment to more surveillance and more policing of the water uh, infrastructure for uh, the entire Southeastern region. And I just think there's gonna be a whole lot more movement around uh, technology as it relates to uh, surveilling resources, particularly water. Mm -hmm. So if you could just keep an eye out for that, that would be extremely helpful. Definitely, I will. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so I don't know, um, Deja, do you have a report for this week? Yeah, um, I kind of wanted to talk about this article that I saw on MSNBC earlier this week. It um, was basically about this writer that feels like Generation X and their naivety is kind of leading to the downfall of privacy in terms of social media and just social or just apps in general. Apps that ask you for information like your phone number, address, email address, and credit card number, all these things that store these these pieces of your information. And I just thought that was interesting. And I just wanted to ask everyone how they felt about that for young people that just sign up for apps. Because I also read in the article that um, the reason that some of these apps are asking for so much information is because of advertisements advertisers are getting information from the apps about people so that they can create ads and marketing and for market, other marketing reasons. And I just thought all of that was something to think about as people get dumber, do the ads get smarter? Hmm. I don't know. We yes. get to my yes. Monica. <laughs> wow. I, I'd love to hear from, from the other experts because for me, I, I see advertising and, and the whole commercialized industry as very much into manipulation and um, mm -hmm. sort of promoting a particular agenda to the American public. But I'd love to hear your, you guys' thoughts in terms of what that looks like. Cause I know a lot of elders that just punch in stuff and sign up for a lot of stuff. So I, I don't know if it's unique just That's to young I, people. I, 
that's what I thought about when I when I read the article because my grandma I mean she's older and sometimes she clicks on ads that she doesn't understand like she's a virus of the victim ad or I'm sorry victim of the virus ads and she's not you know one of the people that'll put her information in in anywhere because she's really private but she's she still falls for things like that so I don't think it's just young people but I thought that was an interesting perspective from the writer so I don't know, Brittany, did you have something you wanted to ask or or add or? Well, Mama Monica said it. I mean, at this point, anybody can be, you know, a victim. They there's 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 <laughs> depending on depending on the the uh, there's different target markets. Right. There there are things that uh, companies, corporations, uh, hackers, scammers use to attract younger people. And there's there's things that attract older people so um that's just how I feel about it I feel as if um with us being in an age of information and us having access to anything that we want to learn study or be and you still see people being distracted by the small petty things like that to me should let you know how much programming is still going on like it it doesn't go away so that's my thoughts and Jaira, what about you? You have thoughts about it at all? Uh, not really. I mean, I feel like they said um, everything else pretty much out of line. Okay. Um. So with that, well, you know what I'll do. Uh, let me give a brief um astrology report. So I know last week i gave like a pretty extensive one this one will be a, a way briefer than the other one so thanks for anybody that listened to that one from last week um but you know we've been we've been talking about like this really strong energy that we have been dealing with for at least a year now that um you know 2021 i mean shoot it started off with uh with a bang you know to say the least and so um you know, it's a, it's an uncertainty, right? It's a lot of uncertainty uh, going on right now. Um, we're still social distancing, but uh, we know the planets, as we have seen, are not social distancing. And, you know, so this month, as I said, is going to feature eight different conjunctions, right? And so um, there's inner, like, fast-moving planets, like the sun and Mercury and Venus are going to meet up with the slower like outer moving planets like Jupiter, uh, Saturn and Pluto. And so kind of think of this like a ballroom dance, you know, um, the planets are going to partner up and then they're going to move gracefully right along to their next dance partner. And so um, these short aspects are going to help us find balance and peace and harmony in our lives. And um, especially when the external environment it feels unstable and unpredictable and, um, you know, a little bit volatile. So we talked last week about how uh, Uranus was going to come direct on the uh, 14th, which was ending the retrograde. And so this month, we've got to move to the rhythm of life, right? And not get caught up in the chaos and um, the technicality of the things that we're witnessing. And, um just to jump forward, we talked about Mars conjuncting Uranus uh, on, the, on January 19th. 
And so this is when Im our impulses are really going to kick in. Um, maybe some feelings of anger and passion might rise to the surface. Um, and so finding our center is going to be uh, much more important, right, than ever before. And so um, just to reiterate some things from last week, you know, Uranus energy is very unpredictable, right? So it's ranging from like earth shattering to um, unexpected blessings. And so when this planet finds itself in critical aspects uh, to Mars and Jupiter, as soon as it comes direct, we're gonna have to embrace the uncertainty and lean on our faith, right? To get us through. So we know that change is never easy, but that is necessary, right? To build a better tomorrow. So this can be a time of extreme anxiety for some people, right? Um, a burst of creative expression or inspiration for others, right? And um, we know we can't let our fears or worries cause stagnation and that uh, we got to move into the unknown with courage in our hearts and learn to accept um, divine intervention. And so um, I just want to end with this. Uh, the sun transits Aquarius as well on January the 19th. And Aquarius 21 season will have us thinking of others, right? In, 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 in what ways can we show up for groups and um, organizations that we belong to? And so um, I'll just put like a period there. And, um, you know, we bring you the weekly astrological uh, report, but I just want to see if anyone had any, uh, did that resonate with folks or anybody have any feedback or anything? Maybe, I'll, um, what about you, Jaira? Oh, are you there, Jaira? Okay, maybe he stepped away for a second. What about you, Deja? Yeah, that resonated with me. Life changes are happening, and I have a lot to like balance out. So I'm excited to see what my options will be for the week. What about you, Brittany? I told you you asked about like you know New Year's resolutions or whatever, and told you mine is just simply discipline. So of course that that uh that touches me because I need to balance out a few things. So. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, sorry, there, I, I okay. away, but, um, yeah. What about yeah. you? So yeah, I've been kind of, um, you know, I've been going through stuff myself. You know, trying to stay uh, equal-headed, so and not letting everything uh, throw me off. Okay. And and what about you, Mama Monica? Did anything resonate with you at all? Oh, it deeply resonated with me. Um, the the transition that we're in, moving personally through trauma into transformation, uh, definitely appreciating that we're moving toward a period of time where there'll be more compassion and uh, consideration for others. And I think the timing is going to be perfect because January the 19th is the precursor to uh, not only the inauguration on the 20th, but also the trial here in the city of Detroit. Uh, there's a class action lawsuit against the uh, racist and inhumane shutting off of water on the 21st. So to me, I believe the planets are aligning and the creator is helping move all the energy in our favor. Wow. Well, with that, we want to talk about uh, moving some energy in our favor. Um, so Brittany, this is what I want to do. If you could please 
intro, um, you know, how, how you came to know about Mama Monica and, um, and, and, and this story that why we, the reason that we brought her here. And then when you're, when you're done and, and when you introduce Mama Monica, just give me a cue because before you speak Mama Monica, I want to hear people uh, hear this clip of you in action before mm. you go all in. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Thank okay, you. So uh, with that, uh, Brittany, take it away. Yes. All right. Well, uh, Mama, excuse me, Mama Monica was our fourth uh, episode uh, for the Piper Carter podcast. And uh, it was almost three years ago. It was May of 2018. And so, like you said earlier, Piper, I wasn't a part of the show at the time. I probably came in two episodes after that. But part of my research and understanding the direction of the show was to listen to the prior episodes. And, and um I was uh, strongly moved by that episode just because of Mama Monica's passion and her intentional work and her uh, her her ability to kind of uh, hold people accountable in such a strategic way. I've, I probably have never encountered anything like that in my life. So that was my introduction to her. Um, in reference to the city of Flint, um, I was raised on the weekends in a city called uh, Metamora, which is 30 minutes outside of Flint. And so when I would go into town with uh, my aunt and uncle, we would either go to Lapeer and then we would go to Flint. And so Flint was my first time, really the city of Flint is special to me just because in that area, there's not a, a lot of black people. And so when we would go into town of Flint, it gave me the ability to see black people in other parts of the state other than Michigan. And then when I went to college, I started to understand that black people are all over this, this, uh, over this state. You know, you got the Kalamazoo area, you got the Grand Rapids area, you got the Muskegon area, you got the Kalamazoo area, and then you have the Flint area. So protecting our people all over the place is very important because we're all going through the same issues. And I know Mama Monica is gonna talk about it because the work she does is strongly in the city of Detroit with the water issues here. Uh, but then also she spreads, spreads and has been spreading her wings to the city of Flint and giving that love. And I think it's very important. And so my second encounter with her was when I actually got the opportunity to meet her. And that was at the Charles H. Wright Museum uh, when they did the premiere of the, uh, the documentary, The Poisoning of an American City, which was just a dynamic documentary um, for me, because it, it, it definitely put it, it put together all the things, the backstory about the city of Flint that can make you understand why this is even much more of a human right issue than what the media or anyone could explain. Um, you asked me before the show, what was something that stuck out in the movie? And the biggest thing that stuck out in the movie to me, um, and that was the most disheartening, is that that water and those pipes have been bad since the 1950s. And so for an emergency manager to come in and for people and residents of the city to be explaining with the little bit of voice that they do have from a perspective of people listening to them in positions of power, to be begging them not to turn that water back on because they knew it was bad and for them to still do it, it was very disheartening. And uh, I'll say, through Mama, uh, Mama Monica giving us 20 or 30 minutes of her time um, during that premiere, 
it inspired me to always say that this is not a story that goes away. This is, this is where we lack in social justice is when the media tells us that something is important we decide it's important. We get passionate and we, we make strong moves and corporations and black athletes and black celebrities get involved. And that's what we need. But it's a continuous effort. It's when no one's looking, are you thinking about the city of Flint? And uh, we often bring up the city of Flint uh, when the, before the, they settled for the 20 million in the city and they were debating on if they should settle for it. Um, we discussed that on the podcast. We discussed um, uh, uh, our governor, as the kids will call her, Big Gretch, um, you know, opened up and said that she wanted to start by doing a $640 million settlement that a lot of people feel isn't enough. I said the city needs about $1.5 billion uh, to, to really make a mark. And then to hear the old mayor come and say that same number one day in an interview made me feel like I was a mathematician or a magician for even guessing that number. It just feels right, you know? So I'm pleasured to have Mama Monica because uh, I heard her on 101.9 a couple weeks ago and uh, doing some, some water justice here in the city because there are people who are still paying, who are being billed for water um, in, a, in the midst of a pandemic and still having water shut off, even though Duggan has promised to not do that. Um, so I would like for you to speak about that, Mama Monica. I'm very humbled that with all the work that you're doing, that you would be with here as, on us on a Sunday night, the, uh, the Sunday before Dr. King Day. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate your work. And I'm looking forward to hearing about the details of what's going on with the settlement, what's going on with the shutoffs in Detroit, and then about the the, uh, the, the the charges up on Snyder that we think as a podcast are completely weak charges. He should be in jail for the rest of his life. And Harvard should be paying some money in a settlement too for giving the, trying to give this man a humanitarian award out of all awards. So that's Mama Monica and, I'm, and uh, I'm excited for her to be here. And Pipe, I know you wanna play a clip. All right, so I'm gonna play this clip. And um, just for people listening, this clip is uh, from, uh, hmm, it looks like, I believe it's 2014. So this, um, you know, is 2021. So I just, I want you to hear, uh, and just to set the clip up, this is at a city council meeting. Um, it's not a hearing, it's a regular city council meeting and this is um my monica speaking um if i'm not mistaken during a public comment all right so here we go good morning um my comments are based on the water issue but i do stand in solidarity with the citizens of detroit and southwest on their issue because every issue is important but as it relates to the water i first of all want to make this body aware that water shutoffs are still occurring so if anyone tells you that they have presented a moratorium and that the water and sewage department is adhering to that moratorium, they are not telling the truth. Since 1983, Detroit has established one of the most successful public water and sewage systems in the nation, maintaining an excellent track record of supplying uncontaminated water to residents to over 120 communities wholesale. However, the DWSD has been under the control of either the federal judge or an emergency manager since 1977. 
throughout the reign of these judges, the hiring of private contractors to tend to the system's infrastructure and financial decisions has continued to tax the system physically and financially. Today, DWSD is spending over $428 million a year to pay off its existing debt, and about 45% of the department's annual budget is spent on debt services. Furthermore, water rates are already padded to compensate for system water loss, including the unprecedented amount of water flowing in abandoned homes. According to DWSD, high interest loans account for much of the water department's debt. The answer to DWSD's debt is cutting services to the most vulnerable low-income families, the elderly and the disabled. As of this morning, I received a call at 6.30 this morning that a 98-year-old citizen of the city of Detroit had his water cut off before the weekend began. He owes a bill of $700. And for the water department to continue to put forth information that they are not cutting people off is disingenuous and is a danger. The National Nurses United came out with a statement to tell all of you that this is a health risk. The United Nations has told the world that this is a health risk. And for this body to sit silent and say nothing about the dangers to your citizens and our citizens about water shutoffs is reckless, irresponsible, and I question whether or not you are representing the citizens of Detroit. The problem with all of this is that the time is up, Ms. Jones, and I respect that, but I'm going to close with this one statement, is that water shutoffs are a danger to to the sanitation and health of Detroiters. And Dr. King said it best, is that signing onlookers that the hottest place in hell is reserved for those that would sit idly by in the time of peril and say and do nothing. And so not to address this issue is reckless. Ms. Patrick, obviously you you don't know what's going on because we are addressing the issue. The water department will be before this body tomorrow. Um, There are some things that I will be asking the water department to do um, when they come before us on tomorrow. And they are supposed to be in a moratorium. I'm going to ask for an additional moratorium. And there are some other things I will be asking them to do. I've been in conversation about the water and all the issues going on this weekend with the mayor as well. As you, and I don't know if you know or not, the council nor the mayor has control over the water department. That is under the emergency manager's jurisdiction. Again, they will be here tomorrow, and you're welcome to come tomorrow morning. But we're not sitting idly and not doing anything. It's been six weeks, Miss Jones, of water shutoffs. I'm I'm knocking on doors of 70 and 80-year-old people who have not had water for three to six months. So this is more systemic. And for you to wait this long is still a risk to the community. What, what? And, and in addition to that, they are not adhering to the auditorium. They're not adhering to the moratorium that's in place right now. And even though you and the mayor may not control the water department, the manager and you still could have made a public statement denouncing the water shutoff, which has not happened from this body. Again, the water department will be here tomorrow. You're welcome to come tomorrow, and you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And because you do not know what's going on behind the scenes, you're Okay, so uh, that's how Mama Monica gets down for the people. Uh, I just wanted y'all to understand. I know that normally we don't play clips that long, but you see why I had to play it. 
so that y'all can see uh, the dynamism, the fervor, the passion, the, the, the knowledge, the, you know, all that she brings and how hard she fights for the people. And that was back in 2014. Okay. So um, before you speak, Mama Monica, I know you want to speak. I just want to get this panel's reaction, my co-host's reaction to what y'all just heard just now. That was incredible. I loved it. Thank you for fighting. Thank you so much. Wow, that it, it's it. Um, it actually satisfies something in my like in my soul. Whereas, like hearing, hear, hearing you, you and other people like you fighting like that is just you know it means a lot because you know not um, everyone is brave enough to do that. You know, Most I agree with that. Sit there and I agree with that, Jared. Not everybody is brave enough to be that to do that. They think it. Yeah. But they don't have the ability to to take it to that next step. You know what I mean? And um, Brittany, what's your? Do you have any reaction to what you heard? I'm just learning. I'm at that at this point. I'm just absorbing. These are the type of things that you know I'm trying to learn. I'll be 32 next year, and you know it, it's time for me. I, it's levels to stuff. It's levels to the work we do in the communities and how we impact people. So I'm always looking for resources and the ability to learn how to do it. You know, you didn't hear her scream. You didn't hear her call anybody out their name. You didn't hear her about to have a heart attack or a stroke. She said what she had to say and she meant it. And that's what I mean about holding people accountable without hurting and messing up your, your health, you know? So powerful stuff. I just want to name that what I heard uh, and I appreciate is that, um, you came in, Mama Monica, with your facts and figures and your experience. And, um, you know, that was the city council president for folks who don't know. And so um, you had people on and on and trying to get themselves together. Um, and, and, and like Brittany said, you just came with uh, the, the double whammy of um, actually working in the streets but also, you know, but also not just the passion, but also your your data. And that is what the the magic of we the people of Detroit is. And um, I'll just give my, um, you know, so people know, um, Mama Monica, you are one of my mentors and my friend. And um, you have taught me so much. And you have brought me into the fold of learning more of how to be accountable to community and um, and the value of research and participatory research. Um, you've done some, com you've led community participatory research projects. You invest in community leaders and leadership and the youth. And um, I just want to give uh, my... Uh, gratitude for all the work that you've done and all that you poured into people in Detroit. And I'll just add, I just want to add um, your quick understanding of, so people can understand um, what We the People is real briefly. It, it's an organization that's based here in Detroit, but you do work uh, nationally and internationally as well. And um, if you if people want to go to uh, we the people 
uh, of Detroit.com, you'll be able to see uh, the mission and the vision um, that you and, and all of your work and, and, and also uh, folks can donate, but you've been delivering water for, um, shoot, almost a decade now. You've been um, teaching folks about water. You've been traveling across the world, um, speaking on behalf of Detroiters. You've been connecting the issue of Flint and Detroit's water struggle. Like I said, if folks want a deeper, deeper, deeper dive, you can go back, like uh, Brittany said, to about, I think it's our fourth episode where we uh, did a deep dive and now we're here. Um, and I will say just briefly this here part, uh, I told Mama Monica this story in 2014, our beloved uh, charity, uh, May Muna Hicks, rest her soul, um, oh, that brought Ashe. us, uh, Ashe, that brought us the uh, wage love. Ashe. She was the policy director for ENIAC. East Michigan Environmental um, Action Council. And um, I was with her for about three days, just uh, at the commons. I had asked her to be my mentor in um, social justice because I was doing arts and culture, but I really wanted to get deeper in this work. And she was like, girl, you don't need no mentor. And I was asking her, you know, I said, you know, we, we young people, we need, we need, you know, your leadership, your guidance so we can learn how to be organizers, you know? And we, as we were talking, you know, I learned about a bit more about her story. And a couple of days, uh, she took me upstairs because she said, you know, I want to show you something about what's going on with the water. And uh, she took me upstairs to her office and she had these really thick uh, legal, legal documents, you know, 25 page legal documents. And um, I was like, uh, she's like, you see this, you see this shit? And I'm looking at it and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to read it and I get like half a paragraph down of this legalese. And I'm like, um, I just hand it back to her. I say, you know, uh, Mama Charity, I, I, I don't understand, you know, what it says. I don't understand what I'm reading. And she was like, they about to have niggas on a whole stroll. And I was like, oh, OK, I understand that. <laughs> but, um, you know, that was just her brilliance. OK, with. Um, the ability to be able to share, um, you know, she was able to read these bills and, and these laws and then interpret it so, to bring uh, regular folks into the fold, to mobilize folks, um, as Mama Monica says, so folks can deputize themselves. And unfortunately, literally a couple of days after that is when I got the news that she'd been hit by a car. Those papers that she showed me was her preparation uh, the legal documents, her data that she was taking with her in her meeting. She had a meeting with the United Nations to have the Flint and Detroit water crisis declared a human rights violation. And she was murdered, uh, martyred, um, assassinated on, uh, on her way. She literally had flown to New York like two days later and she was at the bus stop. She had just gotten there from uh, to a Penn station, which as you know, was on the West side and was waiting on the bus to go to the East side, which is where the United Nations sits to actually have this meeting. And, um, as we know, that was 2014. And, um, I always say they, 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 they may have killed the messenger, but her, uh, 
strength is that she still was able to bring us this message. And so that was where I became fully impassioned and deputized based on experiencing uh having her in my life and having her snatched. And that's when I decided to become a water warrior. So um, I want to welcome the spirit of Charity Maymuna Hicks into the space as we talk about this water warrior that is continuing with, with, the, with the same passion and the same persistence with the data and able to connect the data to the people and the people to the data and bring this to these politicians and uh, make folks be accountable so and also creating solutions and also sharing the knowledge so that community members are able to deputize themselves to be able to learn how to do uh community participatory research and fight for ourselves so i just wanted to bring all that into space and welcome you mama monica lewis patrick of we the people of detroit thank you for coming Ooh. to the podcast wow Wow. Uh, I am just uh, almost rendered speechless uh, between uh, the warmth and the brilliance that is a part of this collective uh, and this podcast and then Brittany's uh, just humbling uh, introduction along with uh, Mama Piper, you reminding me of uh, much of that tumultuous beginning around water advocacy and water work. And so I just have to join you in celebrating uh, what has been an amazing life of Charity Hicks, but also beyond her life has been the continuation of her legacy of ensuring that the people of Detroit have clean, safe and affordable water. So I say, I say, I say to Charity Hicks and thank I you say. for bringing that into the, to the space. I just have to begin first with just letting everybody know that clip that you played, that clip came out of me actually getting that call from that elder at 6.30 in the morning that his water had been turned off. And I uh, was in the process of uh, getting my children ready to drop them off so that I could go to work. And when I got that call, it was one of those things where it, it's different if somebody calls you and you don't know them and they at least seem to be uh, strong and capable and able. It's something different when you have somebody that you can relate to almost like your grandparents and their voice is shaking and they're afraid and they're telling you that they don't even owe what the bill says they owe. And even if they could pay it, they don't have the money to pay it. And so I got up that morning in between getting my children ready and uh, deciding that I had to go down to city council. And so what you heard was something that was created between dropping my children off and getting down to city hall. And it came out of uh, a lot of anger, but also a lot of pain uh, that this elder had found himself in a city that he had loved, uh, that he had invested in, uh, he had bought a home here. He had raised his children here. And to find that he could not get anyone in city government to respond to his cries and pleas for assistance is what motivated me that day to find the courage uh, to speak up, to speak out, to challenge uh, the president and also the council members as a whole 
that they were being derelict in their duties by not responding in a way that was creating systemic change for Detroiters. And so the voice you hear coming out of my body now, that's why I appreciate Pipes that you're putting in this work to find your voice and lift your voice is not the voice that's always been there. Uh, I have been uh, probably from the age of five all the way up until I graduated from high school at 16. I was bullied every day of my life. Uh, and so I really believe those years of bullying uh, really prepared me for life. And so I tell uh, those young women that those 13 young women that would chase me out the bathroom and chase me down the hall, I thank them uh, because they've made me tough. And a lot of the things that I've had to deal with in my adult life, I credit them for uh, toughening me up and preparing me for dealing with emergency managers and water shutoffs and government officials. So uh, sometimes what we find is even in those dark places, the creator will give us a gift or light or some semblance of hope to hang on. And so having said that, as we talk about the Flint water crisis, we can't talk about the Flint water crisis without talking about the Detroit water crisis. And so as, Br as Brittany eloquently laid out for you, uh, there is deep connection between the Flint water crisis and Detroit. First of all, you don't have the Flint water crisis without the Detroit water crisis. And so if we go back to what was happening in 2012 and 13 and 14, you can't leave out the fact that this very same governor that we saw just get arrested and processed this past week, he didn't just deny services and support to Flint. He was also simultaneously divesting and stripping away power in Detroit, in Benton Harbor, in Highland Park. As a matter of fact, he and many of the per persons that collaborated with him were so successful that they were able to disenfranchise over 50% of the African-American population within the state of Michigan. So this doesn't sound like somebody that just made a mistake, that just got up one day and oops, my bad. No, this was some, someone who conspired and calculated and collaborated with other captains of industry to weaken black and brown communities to then make them financially vulnerable to take them over. So let's not forget that. The second piece we have to look at is that in the city of Flint, what was needed? Well, what you had is the person that was heading up the water department and advising the water department had at one point been a water commissioner within DWSD. He had been very active in promoting this idea that if Detroit would begin to privatize its internal operations, it would make us leaner. It would make us more financially solid, but that was never his intention. His intention was really to make us weaker, to make us more vulnerable so that we would be primed for a takeover. So when you look at, the, at Flint, Flint only needed about $100 a month to put the corrosives that were necessary to be placed into the system to maintain some level of quality water. Why did that not happen? It didn't happen because when you look at financial managers, financial managers are not meant to fix your finances. It's the perception that that's what they're there for. Really what financial managers are, and if you've ever heard of this term, straw boss, uh, someone that acts as the liaison to really the person that holds the power. Well, what you had in many of these instances is that you had predominantly black cities, and then you had predominantly black cities that were predominantly democratically leaning, 
Uh, and then you had at the same time the Snyder administration, uh, who was the governor. You had the state legislature, uh, which the majority of them were uh, conservatives. But then you had some Democrats uh, sprinkled throughout. Well, this is the thing that I often have to remind people uh, when we get sort of caught up in these uh, uh, party lines where we're going to be on one side or the other. Well, when you look at what happened in Detroit and Flint, it wasn't just the conservative side of the aisle. It wasn't just Republicans and the GOP. Some of the majority of the emergency managers that took over and actually shifted power, set aside democracy, uh, carved up union contracts, refused to provide water relief in Detroit, many of them were black men that professed to be Democrats. And so I have to lift that up because if we play this idea of, of you know, partisanship, then what we'll be doing is playing right into white supremacy. Because what mm -hmm. white supremacy would have you think is it's us versus them. And no, mm -hmm. what it is, is it's them versus all of us. And so some of that work, what we were able to do is we were able to work in Flint with people like the amazing Mama Claire McClinton, who has a long history of working in organized labor. As a matter of fact, she was a mentee of General Gordon Baker, a long legacy of labor rights in the city of Detroit. Uh, as a matter of fact, he uh, is the late husband of uh, the great uh, Marion Kramer, who we consider one of the godmothers of water activism and water justice here in the city of Detroit. But out of that work, Mother Clara, along with people like Nayara Sharif, uh, along with other amazing women like Leanne Waters and Melissa Mays and Alani, uh, Wani Oliveira, uh, And many of those folks came together, Bishop Jefferson, and these women came together and through their collective work and cooperation, they were successful in not only being able to partner with Mark Edwards from uh, Virginia Tech to get the water testing done, but this is the untold story. The untold story is the story of my business partner and best friend, Deborah Taylor, who is also from Flint. And Deborah uh, and I had an opportunity to take a small grant uh, that had been leveraged through the Michigan, um, uh, the Michigan Roundtable. And through that grant, we were able to leverage, uh, and Deborah did an amazing job of coordinating Flint. She went to Flint from March of 2014 all the way through that winter. She wrecked her car twice, uh, going to organize in Flint. And in March of 2015, Deborah was able to bring about 130 people, uh, residents in the city of Detroit together to actually have a conversation about what they had experienced. And through the art of storytelling, uh, there were only three journalists that showed up, even though this went out statewide. Now, this is why I wanna make sure that we're listening. You had no media that showed up for this event, but one person, and that was Kirk Guyette. You also had two other people that are considered to be uh, experts and researchers and journalists. You have Monica Williams, who has the only black, uh, has the largest black uh, radio blog in the state. And then you also had uh, Professor Shea Howe from Oakland University. But nobody else showed up for this event to hear these dozens and dozens of stories of trauma and impact and harm from the Flint water crisis. Well, out of those stories, Kirk Guyette was able to lift some other stories and he took those stories and compiled them. And then he was able to then release that information to Rachel Maddows that then released it to the world. 
So we talk about a lot of times that Deborah Taylor is an unsung hero in the Flint water crisis because people know about Kirk Guyette and they know about many of the people that I've talked about, but it was in the determination and the cooperative work of having relationships and concern for one another that we were able to partner with the activists in Flint to help them lift their stories. The second thing that happened around this same time is before uh, people even knew about Flint in 2014 and 2015, the residents of Flint were coming to Detroit because we were in the middle of the water crisis where we had seen on average about 8,000 households were being shut off per month. I want that to resonate for people. We have whole towns in this state that don't have 8,000 people. So for people to be okay with 8,000 residents, which means there's about, uh, if 8,000 households were being shut off, there was somewhere in the ballpark of about 24,000 people being impacted. Because on average, about three persons reside in each household. And so as we saw this unfolding, what we began to happen is people were mobilizing and organizing. You were seeing the artist community, uh, folks like Piper and Bryce Detroit and Tawana Petty and Will C and just so many people using the talents that they had to lift the voice of what was happening in Detroit because there was a media blackout. The media was suppressing the information. As a matter of fact, there's an article that was put out by Martina Guzman uh, back in, I think, September of 2020 that talks about the suppression of the water crisis in Detroit that was happening simultaneously as there was a water crisis in Flint. The other thing we have to lift up, and I'm going to stop because I want to entertain some questions, but the other thing that we've got to lift up is the brilliance and the ingenuity of both communities suffering and managing and navigating all of this austerity and racism, but at the same time, having the consciousness of mind to lift each other's story. And so I always applaud the Flint water activists because what they would do as people were enamored with their story and wanting to hear about their struggles and hear about how you're surviving uh, this toxic impact, they would always point to and say, and don't forget about what's happening in Detroit. So they really helped us keep the Detroit water crisis alive because they didn't get so consumed in their own struggle and their own difficulties that they couldn't reach out and help a friend. And we in turn, even though our water was being turned off at a massive level, as a matter of fact, since 2014, over 181,000 households. Now, mind you, I told you it's about three persons per home. So 180,000 households is somewhere in the ballpark of almost close to a half a million people. So when you factor that in, and this was what was happening at the same time that we were going through a bankruptcy that we were seeing pensions diminished, that we were seeing elders that had worked and saved in the city lose their homes illegally. If you don't believe that, go to a website called illegalforeclosures.org. And what you'll find out is the largest portion of homeowners in this city that were low income had their uh, assessments uh, higher than 50 to 85% of what they should have been. So when you see this kind of racist, uh, racially led, uh, racially targeted kind of policy making, you can't help but question the intentions of those that are making the policy. And so as we moved on and from 2014 into 2015, and you were seeing people in Flint getting sicker, and you were seeing more and more devastation, uh, what has to be noted 
is that all throughout this process of time, Governor Snyder was claiming that there was no other choice, that Flint was getting the best that money could buy, that it was because of failed Black leadership that they were even in the situation in the first place, that if they had just paid their bills. Does this sound familiar? Yes. Blame the victim. Blame the very person that's been paying the bill. And so this has happened in Detroit, it's happened in Flint, but it's happened all across the state. And we also have to be mindful of the fact that the very policies that are drafted, uh, one being emergency management, that policy is on the books in 37 states. So even right now, while some people might be celebrating this new administration coming in, many of the bad policies that have played out for decades are still laws on the books. So I'll pause there because I could talk on and on about and water and Detroit and what's happening, but I also want to leave some room to answer your questions and then also give you an update as to what's happening and what we're moving forward in 2021. I think for me, um, I've always wondered how the story got Rachel to Rachel Madoff and you mentioned it and I want to say thank you for that, but can you just kind of like remember like kind of like uh talk to us about what you remember about that time frame and where the issue was and like give us just some of your commentary about seeing it on Rachel Madoff and your opinion about it because so many people still don't understand that it was a huge issue and that it was about to become a really really big issue up until from my perspective Obama goes to Flint sits in a meeting with some of the citizens of Flint, tells them to chill out and that they're an aggressive crowd, takes the, a seemingly a cup of tap water and drinks it. And we all know through media literacy that when the government does something like that, that it is a complete PR move. And from there, the story never went anywhere. And it took for it to go to Rachel Maddow for the world to kind of shift their necks and to look at Flint. So can you just talk about that time frame of it? Because so many people need to know this part to understand the true intricacy of the story. You're exactly correct. Uh, I, I always credit Obama for Flint not being fixed. And the reason I say that is that uh, the activists in Flint and in Detroit and really water war warriors across the region and the nation had spent a lot of time and effort mobilizing and organizing just to raise attention to Flint. So it wasn't like just because children were getting sick and people were dying of Legionnaire's disease and uh, Citanella and other uh, diseases that uh, government was responding government was chalking it up to black people don't take care of themselves. They don't go to the doctor. They don't eat well. They are overweight. Uh, they are uh, reckless in terms of over drinking, smoking too much. So they used all of the stigmas and the labeling that they use all the time to uh, justify not providing certain services. They used all of that to justify not moving more quickly in Flint. Well, a lot of people don't know behind the scenes, this is why I applaud the leadership of Mayor Weaver, is that 
after Mayor Weaver declared a health emergency, people have to remember President Obama was not willing to declare it a an emergency because at the time he was more concerned about litigation against his EPA director. And also they were deeply wedded to this idea that Detroit was going to come back. So part of what Obama was, he was working in collaboration with Kevin Orr, who was the emergency manager in Detroit. And I have to give you a, a little bit of intel there. Kevin Orr uh, was the emergency manager for the city of Detroit. Prior to that, he worked for a law firm called Jones Day. Jones Day is one of the largest law firms in the country. Jones Day is not only the law firm for the city uh, for uh, the emergency managers, but Jones Day was also the law firm that was inside the city of Detroit during the bankruptcy, shuffling the chairs on the deck. So who do you know that allows the same law firm to defend uh, and to prosecute? But somehow it was allowed in the city of Detroit to create the contrived bankruptcy of Detroit. At the same time, uh, we did some research and what we found is Kevin Orr knew Obama very well. That Kevin Orr had been uh, the treasurer for uh, President Obama's campaign when he was running for office. We didn't find that to be an accident. And as a matter of fact, uh, Kevin Orr was promised that once he, did, he was able to deliver Detroit into bankruptcy, that he would get his own law firm. So he now has a division of Jones Day in Florida that is a multi-million dollar law firm that was gifted to him in exchange for him being a black face, a black man willing to deliver uh, the bodies of Detroiters and to take and steal our assets. You also have going on at the same time, simultaneously, uh, you have happening is that uh, Mr. Obama flew in, and that morning, it's my understanding, uh, Governor Snyder was extremely angry at Karen Weaver for declaring a health emergency in her city. And she had no other choice because the governor was doing everything that he could to cover up his tracks in terms of him being derelict in his duties and not responding more quickly to what was happening in Flint. Well, everybody knew about this tension. And so, what Obama did is he uh, had uh, Mayor Weaver meet him at the airport. And unbeknownst to Mayor Weaver, he also had Governor Snyder meet him at the airport. And then they drove to Flint. And as they were driving there, he pretty much told Mayor, Mayor Weaver, get over it. I don't care what it is, work it out. I need this to go away. So this was really about Obama wanting to have this bad uh, smudge on his record, if you will, go away. It had nothing to do with fixing Flint, providing justice for Flint, uh, giving a damn about the fact that this was a majority Black city that was uh, structurally and systematically poisoned by uh, the austerity measures played out by Rick Snyder. And I also would say that President Obama, uh, to me, demonstrated a lack of courage because it could have been a shining moment of him speaking truth to power and really holding the, not only the governor, but his own EPA accountable. And he chose to do neither. Wow, thank you, Mama Monica. Um, I don't know if Deja, did you have any questions about this part? 
You there, Deja? Okay, we'll come back to Deja. Jaira, do you have questions about this part? Uh, not really. I, I was more so just um, listening and observing. I really didn't have much to say, but I really did enjoy everything you did say. Okay. And um, I know I have a question, Mama Monica, uh, and this relates to the book um mapping the water crisis um before we go into the update could you just i know we spoke about it on episode four but for those who um haven't heard that episode could you just speak a bit about that book because the book actually makes these connections with the data so and um if folks uh and and and, and how and where folks can actually get this book well, mapping the water crisis uh, came out of a couple of things. One is that uh, as we were dealing with the, the water crisis here in the city of Detroit, a massive water shutoffs, the city very conveniently uh, does not provide records of those shutoffs and restorations. And part of the reason they don't do that is that uh, they have weaponized water as a way to gentrify the city and move black folks out of their homes and out of the city uh, to really prime it for a younger, whiter, more tech savvy crowd is what their goal is. It also gives them the ability to diminish uh, black democratic power uh, because the goal of those corporate elites is to really shift the city, not only in terms of the racial makeup of the city, but also the economic and political makeup of the city. And so one of the things that really uh, uh, stood out to us is, uh, is the fact that with the water shutoffs, uh, we were repeatedly told that you can't prove it. You don't know that we're intentionally doing this and you have nothing that you can demonstrate to show it. So in 2014, uh, we came together with researchers and scientists, community members and artists, and we put together what we call We the People of Detroit Community Research Collective. It was about 14 experts uh, that came together. And with that, what we did is a couple of things. We mapped uh, the historical context of the city's water department because we wanted to make sure as the assets were being sold off and shifted out of control of Detroiters, that Detroiters didn't forget that you were the people that built the city, invested the system, invested in the system, and you still are the owners of the system uh, until something changes. And so that was one piece. The second piece was to be able to give uh, a scientific uh, approach to how we were able to uh, prove that this was impacting Detroiters at a great level. And so some of what we were able to do is that we worked with a journalist and, um, and videographer by the name of Kate Levy. And Kate was able to work with the ACLU. And we, through our uh, collective work, were able to sue the city of Detroit seven times. And we won seven times, mind, mind you. We had to sue them to get information to, on how many people were being shut off from water. Now, this is the same system that used to, under the leadership of Mayor Coleman Alexander Young, used to mail out to every household in the city of Detroit a report that told you that very same information. So we find it very difficult to believe that you couldn't do it in the 70s and the 80s, but now in the 2000s. Uh, you could do it then, but you can't do it now. 
Uh, the other thing that we did is we met with some researchers from Henry Ford Health Systems Global Health Initiative, because what we were thinking is that if we're concerned about the health and welfare of Detroiters, then the health uh, department and the uh, hospitals have to be seeing some kind of medical impact uh, from the shutting off of water. Well, we met with a young man by the name of Alex Plum, and Alex was a researcher, but he also had some relationships with some of the clergy that worked within the environmental justice movement. And so Alex met with us and our team, and what we decided to do, he said, Monica, I cannot uh, look at this from a political or social justice uh, framework, but I can look at it as a science and health issue. And so they took our maps that we had crafted under the leadership of Professor Emily Kudel, and also uh, looked at the public health framing from Dr. Nadia Gaber, uh, who were both on our team. And then they met with their team. And with that collective information, they came up with a report that shows that it's not just about your water being off. If you live on a block, if you just live on one city block and just one of your neighbor's water is off, it increases the probability of you contracting uh, some kind of a waterborne disease or illness just from you living on the block with them not having water. And I want to pause with that, an intentionally pregnant pause, that if you have water, but you live on a block where one of your neighbors, just one household does not have water, it increases the potential of you contracting a waterborne disease by 150%. And so once we were able to demonstrate that, along with the book of mapping the water crisis, then that information became a tool that we could use to shift the narrative and the conversation. And I have to give a lot of credit to Tawana Petty, who's an artist and a digital justice uh, advocate and expert. She was the one that came to me and said, Mama Monica, you've got to do some things different. And some of what you've got to do different is you've got to begin to get more young people engaged in having this conversation. And so Piper will tell you that's why I spent the last couple of years, along with my organization, attending, uh, you know, poetry slams and hip hop uh, concerts and going on, um, you know, podcasts like this is because we need you. We need your creativity and your ingenuity. We need the fact that you, you speak in a way to each other that some of us as elders don't always understand. But I know for we, the people of Detroit, we respect it and we are uh, constantly trying to find ways to support youth leadership and the development of that leadership. Uh, I think the other thing that we saw with mapping the water crisis is it allowed everybody to visualize together that this was not just in our mind that we saw our neighbors and our friends running water hoses from house to house. And we know parts of the city you can go still now and see that. And then the other thing that we were able to dispel is this, this misnomer that somehow it was just poor folks struggling to keep their water on. Well, after we mapped the entire city, what we found is that even in some of the more affluent neighborhoods, like for example, East English Village, uh, approximately 40% of that population in that neighborhood struggles to keep their water on. And what we know is that water rates have gone up over 438% in the last two decades. So in 20 years, people have seen their water bill almost increase to the tune of about 
Well, when you have a city that's about 40% uh, living in poverty, 60% of the city is headed up by uh, majority black women, single heads of households with anywhere from two to four children. When you also know that the population of the city, the water infrastructure was built to service about 2 million people and you have a, a population of only 725,000, then that tax drain on itself is one of the things that's making it even more and more difficult for Detroiters to afford their water. 70% of the people that work in the city of Detroit don't live in the city of Detroit, which means they are not contributing to the tax base of the city of Detroit in a way that's meaningful and sustainable. And so we raise these issues because Detroit is providing water to about 40% of the state of Michigan. 126 municipalities and townships get their water from the residents of Detroit. But guess what? There are only two places in this state, in that 126 municipality and township that has have these very aggressive policies that say it's all right to turn off water on black folks. I would ask this audience, can you tell me which two cities you think it might be that it's okay to turn water off at a massive level? Detroit and Flint. Detroit and Flint. Detroit and Flint. And so it's all right in their minds because they're, they're poor and they're black and, you know, uh, they're disposable is what they think. But what we know, and this is what I want to remind your listening audience and all of you, is that Detroit is still the arsenal of democracy. We are still the city that put the world on wheels. And we are also still the city that has brought more humanity into the space of water and water justice. Because as people were saying it was all right to cut our water off, what Piper told you was exactly correct. Charity Hicks had already deputized all of us as water warriors to understand that it wasn't just Detroiters having access to water, but it was about us as black women, most of us women of color, but majority black women in this city, understanding that we're the mothers of all civilization. And so when you understand that you have this mantle on you as a mother of all civilization, then you also have to love all of your children, which means all of humanity. So it was women, women, indigenous women, and black and brown women that begin to mobilize and organize themselves to lift up this issue of injustice. It was women from the Arab Spring that began to reach out to us and say, we want to stand in solidarity with Detroit and Flint for water justice and water rights. It was, it was women in, in Ireland and in South America. One of the meetings that our young people organized, uh, Piper was a part of that, so was Will C and Tawana and many of the young revolutionaries. They came together and created a conversation between us and Cuchababa. Well, Cuchababa is in South America, it's in Brazil. And one of the things we learned from Cuchababa is that Cuchababa went through a 16 year struggle to get back control over their water system. And one of the things I learned from my grandson that he learned from a cartoon, he said, yeah, yeah, whoever controls the water controls the people. And I've learned that that's correct. And so what we learned in Cuchababa is that they had owned their water system. And once they transferred their water system over to a privately ran water system, the people saw their water quality diminish and they saw their control over it diminish and they saw their water rates go up, increase. And so what they got together through this 16 year struggle is they began to organize. Well, what the men decided is the women were better organizers. 
that they did a better job of coming together and meeting and moving the agenda. So Kuchababa made a decision that the majority of the people that have to govern the water for Kuchababa have to be women. Now, I can't tell you anything that's more progressive of an idea than that. And then what Kuchabamba was able to do through that 16 year struggle was to regain control over their water. So we often lift up Kuchabamba because to us Kuchabamba is the example of taking back control over your assets. And so when you look at the city of Detroit and you look at water, why water is gonna be so critical and it's gonna be one of the most important issues of your lifetime is that up until 1977, the US government used to contribute about 67 to 69% of the money that was invested in maintaining water infrastructure. What we know now is that the US government only contributes seven to 9%. So this is why you have in this year of 2021, you have about 15 million Americans, that's one in every 20 families across this country struggling to keep access to water. In 2017, Dr. Elizabeth Mack at, Wayne, at Michigan State University told us that by the year 2022, over 30%, about 35.6%, almost 40% of America would not be able to afford their water. So if we continue down this track that we're in right now, even with this alleged uh, uh, proposed uh, pinky swear moratorium from the mayor, it's only a promise. And a promise is only as good as the person's word that gives the promise. And this mayor does not have a long history of keeping his promises to black people that live in the neighborhoods. Now he's all right with business and philanthropy, but he doesn't seem to be really good with keeping those promises to the community. And so we're uh, sort of on pins and needles because what we know is that March 31st of this year, there will not be a moratorium for the rest of the state of Michigan. And so that's why I raised the point that Detroit is so critical to the world around water justice because we not only fight for Detroit, we fight for the world to get water. And so we're advocating between now and March 31st that Michiganders would call the governor, they would call their state reps, they would call their local administrators to tell them that they are committed to a pledge to bring about water affordability for the state of Michigan. And so I would ask all of you to go to our website, wethepeopleofdetroit.com. If you look at the top of that site, it's called the pledge. We're asking all of you to take the pledge to ensure in our lifetime that every American citizen and resident can have access to clean, safe, and affordable water. I don't care what your aspirations are. None of us can function without a couple of things, without air and without water. We can make it a period of time without shelter. We can make it a period of time without food, but you can only make it a short period of time, about five to six days without any water. And what about three minutes with no air? And so I would say second to air is water. And what we know is that the city of Detroit will not stand and the residents of Detroit will not be able to stay if we cannot assure that every resident in the city of Detroit has a pathway to clean, safe and affordable water. This is a fight that I'm willing to stake my life on. I will fight it with my last breath. I believe that you and my children should not have to fight to just be able to drink and be hydrated. 
Mama Monica, before we go to the um, Snyder, I wanted to just ask you to speak on two things. Um, Rashida Tlaib, Congresswoman, Michigan Congresswoman, uh, Rashida Tlaib has, um, I think is a bill. I think it's a bill or an act. A bi- is it an act? She has an act. She has an act to uh, for the uh, uh, Human Right to Water Act. And then also on the city level, the city of Detroit uh, charter. Uh, currently, you you've been instrumental in getting uh, water affordability written into uh, the city charter. Just can you speak on those two before we go to the uh, Snyder conversation? Definitely. Thank you so much for raising that, uh, Kuiper. Uh, our amazing Congresswoman. Uh, the Honorable Rashida Tlaib has just been um, a, an exceptional leader on this issue for water justice, water equity. One of the first things she promised us as she was running for uh, the, the former Congressman Conyers' seat is that she would continue his fight. Many people don't know that uh, Congressman Conyers was a critical part of why we were able to evidence a water affordability strategy in the city of Detroit back in 2005. Uh, Detroit's model for that particular policy uh, was crafted in coordination between Michigan Welfare Rights People's Water Board, but it was legislatively led by the honorable uh, and still great council member Joanne Watson, along with the late Marianne Mahaffey. And so it was through their leadership, but the support of Congressman John Conyers, uh, that People's Water Board and Michigan Welfare Rights were able to materialize uh, a water affordability policy that is now being utilized in Philadelphia, in, in Baltimore, being looked at in Chicago and other places across the country. So as I said, you know, Detroit is leading on this issue, even though our local officials seem to be slowful in uh, taking advantage of the expertise that's here. Uh, and then the second part of that question, uh, Piper, was around, um, remind me. The, 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 uh, the, city, the city charter and the, the uh, charter. water affordability written, being written into the charter. Well, some of what we've had to do is that about three and a half years ago, we put together uh, what's called the Michigan Water Unity Table. And it was to bring together grassroots from across the state of Michigan, because what we were finding affordability wasn't just impacting Detroit and Flint, uh, that we were seeing affordability issues in Highland Park. Uh, as a matter of fact, Highland Park was really the first case that was brought forward around these inequities. But then we were also seeing it play out in some different ways with our predominantly white rural partners. We were seeing many of them dealing with things like PFOS and PFOS which are these forever chemicals uh, that you can't get rid of, but they're toxic. And a lot of times they come from the companies and manufacturers that make plastic kinds of items. And so this contamination is all over Michigan because we're a manufacturing state. And so through those different uh, collaboratives, we came up with something called the 10 point must haves. And so that's also on the We The People of Detroit website. And the 10 point must haves are the critical components of a policy that the people say must be in there. Because a lot of times politicians will start with a good idea and they haven't spoken to one person that's been impacted by the issue. They'll just have a bright, bright idea and then they'll begin to move on it. And what we end up a lot of times doing is fighting them to stop a bad policy. And what we were able to do is get out in front of it and actually draft a good policy. 
And so with that, we partnered with a couple of groups. We've been uh, collaborating with a group that's been headed up by Pro Tem Mary Sheffield and Council Member uh, Lopez, Consuela Lopez. And then we've also been able to meet with other groups that are working on everything from surveillance to housing, uh, to water and air and um, all kinds of issues that are dealing with what we consider more bread and butter issues for the everyday Detroiter. And so through the Bill of Rights, uh, one of the things that we offered up because we could see that the charter revisions were gonna be very slowful is that we begin to meet with our attorneys and other collaborative partners in the community to put together a water affordability revision to the charter. And what would happen in that revision is that it would assure Detroiters that those persons that live at uh, an income level of 150 to 200% of the poverty, federal poverty guidelines would be able to have a pathway that would not charge them more than 2.5 to 3% of their income to access water. Right now, the average Detroiter that's in this particular bracket is paying 10% and upward of their income to access water. And so that too is lending itself to displacement to people not able to afford their medicine or quality food uh, or transportation, things that they need to be able to take care of themselves. And so uh, we're really hopeful uh, that Detroiters are going to get behind this revision to ensure that we don't have to keep begging. We don't have to rely on whomever is in elected office. This is the city's charter, which is the constitution for the city of Detroit, which would guarantee that every Detroiter has uh, a pathway to be able to sustain their water and sanitation. And I just want to thank you for that because um, as we, we continue to say on this podcast, uh, currently for some reason or another, even though uh, Detroit is majority black city, and even though our so-called um, powers that be are majority black, folks have decided on the, uh, uh, the city's department of uh, water and sewage and, 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 and I don't even understand where this idea would even come from, especially from Black people that are from Detroit, but that if a person's water is cut off, then, then somewhere in their brain, they think that people's children need to be taken away from them by the police. And they, uh, they come to the house with the child protective services and remove children from the home. And this is over as little as, a, I don't know, I think you said on the thing before, like a couple, two or $3 or something, somebody's bill was over and, and you know, just, and, and, and just the seven understanding. Cent pipes. Was it seven, seven cents? It was seven cents. Seven cents, okay. And then on top of that, uh, where that to them, if it's about money, you would take that from poor people, but you won't take the money from these corporations that owe upwards of 10, tens of thousands of dollars in back water bills, uh, companies, terrible companies like DTE, who is, you know, uh, cutting people off of their electricity. So um, if this gets put into the charter, you know, that eliminates uh, that type of toxicity. But, you know, this is just, even though you have named many atrocities, um, this is one of the most nefarious things uh, I ever I ever heard of in my life. Well, it's a mo it's a modern day uh, slave trade, if you will. 
because one of the things you'll find some of the research that we did is that we looked into this air this period of time when Snyder and his cronies were cutting off the water in Detroit and poisoning the water in Flint. They were also promoting to the suburbs uh, that as children were being removed or taken, that it would be a good idea for them to become foster parents. So as they were eliminating cash assistance, because remember, for the majority of, of low-income women or families in this city, how were they able to pay their water bill? If they were getting Section 8 housing, they were getting food assistance through food uh, SNAP and, and food stamps, uh, then how were they paying their water bill? Because you can get assistance on energy, but they weren't getting a whole lot of assistance on water. They were paying their water bill with their cash assistance. So you saw within a four-month period uh, in 2012, Snyder cut off over 40,000 families from cash assistance. So th that meant that those women went from being able to at least keep some soap and toilet paper and keep the water on to then everything's cut off and them having to run to the corner store and buy several jugs of water just to try to cook and wash up and flush the toilet. And one of the things I learned from these women, uh, these are the women that taught me uh, all the ways that you had to reuse water. So some of the things that I've learned from just uh, sitting at the knee of these brilliant women that are making ways out of no way uh, was teaching me how one woman showed how she may uh, boil some water to make oatmeal uh, or she may boil water to make spaghetti and then the leftover residue water she doesn't pour it out and down the sink like many of us do. She pours it in a bucket or she pours it in the sink. And then that becomes the water that she uses to wash the dishes. And then they don't throw that water out or let it go down the sink. They then loosen up the pipe underneath the sink and let it drain into a bucket because then she has to use that same water to flush the toilet. And so, there was an article that just came out this past week from Martina Guzman comparing the conditions in particular neighborhoods in Detroit as it relates to water shutoffs to the same kinds of conditions and tactics that are being used in Johannesburg, South Africa. So this is not just a condition of poverty in a concentrated way. This is actually a tactic of moving and navigating bodies into places that you've either decided you want to reoccupy or that you no longer want to occupy. Wow, that's a military move. It is. I mean, that's one of the things that haunts me too, uh, along with, you know, just getting that call from Ms. Alice the day that Charity was arrested. But in 2014, uh, I called my mother after hearing about charity and I was upset and we were trying to figure out what we could do. And uh, my mother is a 24 year combat veteran. Uh, she served in the Persian Gulf War. Uh, she's a military nurse. She retired as a master sergeant. My mother is 76 years old, can still be called up by the US Army because she has a unique skill of setting up a surgical unit in a war zone. And one of the things she told me in 2014, as I was crying about how awful it was that they were shutting off people and babies and people didn't have water. And she said, listen to me, 
She said, cutting off water is an act of war. And I said, ma'am, she said, cutting off water is an act of war. That according to the Geneva Convention, you cannot shut off your enemy in times of war from water. So if the American government or municipal governments in this country are shutting off American citizens, you better understand that you have just stepped into the water wars. And so I live my life uh, very seriously about this work. I believe it is a mission and a calling. I believe that every person, I don't care what their background, hue, religion, or ideology is, I believe all humanity deserves a human right to water and sanitation. But I also live knowing that water is the new gold. There's actually a video that you can Google called Blue Gold. And because water is so precious and fresh water is so rare, we sit on one fifth of the world's fresh water, about 23% of it. And so it's right at our back door. So I'm hoping that none of us are naive enough to believe that we somehow just ended up here by accident. I believe that we sit on one fifth of the world's fresh water because God has ordained it so. I believe we're in a position of stewardship and innovation where we can create jobs and opportunities. I believe that we have a moment that will allow us to reimagine Detroit as a city that is a beacon and a light to the rest of the world, as opposed to what they presented us as, as uh, dysfunctional and um, the last one out cut the lights off. And the beauty of this moment is that because water is so precious and because we have been the canary in the mine, then we have learned some things much quicker than the rest of the country has learned about how precious it is, the importance of managing it, but also how to defend the democracy of it. We believe that water should always be public, that there should not be public in, uh, private entities controlling water. We believe that water should be affordable and accessible. We also know right now in the city of Detroit, you have about 80,000 miles of lead lines in this city. So as we divest from the city of Detroit, we're gonna find that we're gonna have more and more people getting sick. We're also in the middle of a project which Piper and some other young people are involved in where we are testing water in the city of Detroit. Because one of the things we learned from an engineer and collaborator of ours is that that the city is under-testing its uh, lead contamination. So as Gary Brown is applauding himself for having a good test result, what we believe is that he is rigging the test by under-testing, which there are Detroiters that may be uh, being exposed to lead even now and may not know it. And we have all kinds of pipes in the ground, everything from wood logs to galvanized iron uh, to lead. And so it's gonna be really important for us uh, to never forget about Flint, but to also continue to fight that no one else becomes another Flint, and especially here in the great city of Detroit. Thank you, Mama Monica. Those are my questions. I want to turn it back over to Brittany to ask about Snyder. You there, Mama Monica? Yeah, yeah. Mama, Mama, uh, Monica, can you uh, so break down? where how we've gotten back to Snyder so I know last year at the end of the year I think it was maybe let's just say either uh, let's just say fourth quarter um 
I believe they dropped the, the, the case, the original case and uh, communicated that that didn't mean that um, the people that that were originally held on charges, you know, wouldn't be held accountable, but the case wasn't going anywhere. Um, I don't know why if you want to break that down. Um, and then, you know, now here it is, we are in 2021 and Snyder is brought on these charges. So can you just kind of detail for us and our listeners um, how we've gotten to this point and what this means? I think there's a couple of things. I think that uh, that the Attorney General, Dana Nessel, uh, knew that the clock was ticking down on the statute of limitation for the cases. And so I think she had to make a strategic decision about one, not running out the clock and not being able to charge anyone. So that's why she dropped the charges. Uh, I think a second reason they dropped the charges is that as long as those persons had been in the employ of the state of Michigan or uh, some level of employment with state government, uh, then it made us as Michiganders, it put us on the hook for those persons' uh, legal fees and uh, legal representation. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to pay for anybody that's already committed a crime against me. And so uh, it really opened the door for them strategically, I think, to be able to maneuver out of spending the taxpayer's dime to pay for these criminals to get a, a, a defense, which they are deserving of a, a fair defense. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be on the taxpayer dime. So I think those two things really came into play. And then as it relates to now the, uh, the recharging or the updated charging of Snyder and the other eight people, I think there's a couple of things at play there. One is that it's it's a great opportunity for uh, this case should it go to an appeal process uh, beyond Genesee County and be appealed by the defendants at the state level. We right now have a majority democratically leaning uh, set of jurors at the state level. So that's going to help uh, in terms of the probability of whatever happens in Genesee County sticking. We know that these people are extremely wealthy, so we, we're already prepared that they're going to probably try to appeal this all the way up uh, to the circuit court and potentially to the Supreme Court. What I believe is it's going to get more and more difficult for them once they go through the trial at Genesee County, uh, because it's my understanding from the prosecutor, Kim Worthy, uh, that that was part of the strategy of why they chose to go before a grand jury instead of going through the regular process of, of discovery uh, is that they wanted to go uh, very expeditiously through this process, but also being able to expose all of the information in that grand jury process without the, uh, the legal manipulation. Thank you. Um, and Brittany, did you have any more um, of your questions? Because I know you did some 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 strong research on um, the Snyder um, update. Uh, no, I don't have any more questions, but I do have a comment um, in regards to something that Mama was talking about um, before Rick Snyder. You mentioned water being gold, and it's funny uh, to hear you say that. I'm a water sign. I'm a Scorpio. And I live down here off 4th Street and I have a direct view of uh, the Detroit River. And water is everything for me. 
because I understand what it means from a spiritual and a metaphysical level, especially with me being a water sign and then just being a human being and water being mostly who we are. So to hear you say it's gold is a, is a great way to put it. Um, and as you know, through this work, it's just, it's just a, it's a human necessity. And uh, I'd say that we as uh, black people uh, and people in general need to start promoting water more. There's a rapper, Deja knows him by the name of Mick Jenkins and everything he's from Chicago, which is, I guess, no coincidence because they're, you know, they, they're, they're in touch with the Great Lakes as well. But everything he talks about in his music is related to water. Water is the baseline for all of his metaphors. He has a song that actually says water more important than the goal, better clear your soul. Like, so it's just interesting to me that the people who understand water or that are water signs or that are near water, they understand the importance of water. But I really don't think we put water um, in its place and priority in our daily lives like we should. And we talk about PSAs and we talk about different things that we can do. I'd like to see us as creatives talk about water more and, and, and do advertisements. That's just like rappers put up there, still do the street work of, you know, putting their album. album. I saw Big Sean when he released uh, Detroit 2. He put different roses in different parts of his album covers all over the city, all over the walls, all on the grounds. That's what we need to do with water. For people to fight for water, they need to understand how important it is. And so I like to, you, we talked about, we all have a voice in this. You know, I was doing pizza this weekend and how I broke down the recipe to these kids is, okay, the flour is the baseline of the recipe, right? You can't have dough without flour. However, the next thing really in the recipe, really the, to me, the most important thing is the water. So the dough, you have 300 grams of flour. If you want a hydrated dough that's airy and good and crispy, the water level has to be at a specific level. I like a 75% water level. So even from making pizza, water mm. is important. So we need to discuss this. We need to explain this to our children that every day my mom used to tell me, the first thing you should do after you pray is drink a glass of water. We yes. have to get back to that. Mm. Yeah, mm. thank you, Mama Beverly. <laughs> yes, yes. But you hit on to something too that I, I would love for us to continue to explore. And I would like uh, to invite this group as we're building with other youth across the Great Lakes. Uh, we have something called the Great Lakes uh, People of Color Water and Policy Camp. And out of that work, uh, one of the things that we did some research here in the state of Michigan on is that it became very difficult for people outside of Detroit and Flint to believe or to support water as a right. Like they hated that ideology. Like anytime we would use that phraseology, they would just spaz out. But they could accept water as a need. So they agreed that water is a need when we were looking at messaging and targeted audiences. But they could not they could not accept the fact that water was a right. Now their guns are a right and their speech is a right, but water is not a right. Unreal. So yeah, I, I'm still floored by that. So if there are ways that you guys can help us 
reshape that messaging or be able to expand that messaging to increase the dialogue. Uh, because some of the very blockages that we're having on these policies at a state and local level are with people that also need water. <laughs> so it's their racial biases. And then for some of our people, it's internalized oppression. Because I hear from Black bourgeoisie in Detroit all the time, Black folks just ought to pay their bills. Uh, but I often respond to that Black elitism with, if not for the grace of God, there go I. So... You know, as you're, you're confident right now, none of us anticipated COVID. None of us anticipated a whole shutdown of the American government. And to me, COVID has been an equalizer because all of us have washed our hands more than we ever thought we ever would or could. Preach. So in, just in washing your hands, and I do it often with my own children as, uh, over the past few years. If all of us would just take one day and get up in the morning, and I do it sometimes when I used to teach at Mary Grove, I would do it with my students. I'd have them journal for three days every time they touch water. Because what I believe is that once you have a, an intimate relationship with water and understand that as the Native American family members talk about water as their relative, if we would begin to treat water as our relative, then usually if someone's your relative, they get treated a little more special than other people. Uh, they, they're loved on a little bit more. You invest a little bit more. You do more. And that's how we've got to look at water. Uh, but I would encourage your listening audience just to take one day. We usually try to advocate for it in October. We've done it for the past five years. We participate in a national event called Imagine a Day Without Water. And so I, I don't want to encourage it for people that may have medical issues. But if you'll just take one day and just journal your interactions with water, everything from making your coffee and tea to washing your hair or mopping the floor, or as you stated uh, so eloquently, uh, Brittany, to even making that good crispy dough. Uh, none of it moves, none of it operates, none of it has any vitality or life without water. And so, uh, like I said, it, it, it's something to me uh, I'm trained as a, you know, for eight years, I ran a psychiatric uh, response team. My background is in special education, so I have a love and passion for children. Uh, I never in my wildest dreams thought that uh, my life's work would be to advocate for the human right to water. But it is so important. Uh, it is something that I hold dear and sacred. I consider myself part of that long legacy of water women, water warriors that have come out of the city of Detroit. Uh, and one of the things that Mayor Young, and I'll end with this, is that he told us that whatever we did, don't let them take the water because he knew how important it was. But he also reminded us if we find a good fight, get in it. So I'm gonna encourage all of you and your listeners that the fight for the human right to water is a fight we're fighting. And I'm hoping that all of you will join me in it. And Mama Monica, can you, so right now Snyder is being charged and um, it looks like he's about to tangle himself out of it. And he, uh, I think they only gave him something like a thousand dollar fine. And then they're looking at the uh, folks that were, you know, working under him or working uh, on a more, uh, you know, I, I don't know another word, but I'm going to say a more subservient level that are, um, are Black folks. And they're looking to them 
to uh, be the scapegoats and, and, and them to be the ones that are actually going to do this time. And um, I'm just wondering, like, what is it that is, is, is there something we can do to man, we, Snyder needs to be in prison. What can we do? And I'm saying this as an abolitionist. Well, <laughs> well what, what we can do is a couple of things. One is that uh, judges hate to rule in the public square. Judges hate to make these real tough decisions with a lot of eyes watching and observing. And so one of the things that we can do to help our family in Flint, because the people in Flint are sick and they're managing, uh, I know families that are not only managing their own health care and challenges, but then they're navigating with their children and their children may have physical uh, issues and psychological at the same time, or their grandmother and their mother is sick and on dialysis because of the poisoning. And that's something that gets underreported is that there's been an uptick in just the last five years of, uh, of elderly in Flint having to have dialysis. And nobody did any research on it because guess what? It was more lucrative to get funding for, from philanthropy by studying the harm to the children. So it wasn't about fixing it or solving it. It was about where the greatest investment in research was dedicated. And what we know from, from, uh, from Wayne State University, a study came out, I wanna say in 2016 that demonstrated that lead actually uh, stays in the bone platelets for up to four generations. So it's not just the children we see today, it's the three and four generations that they will, uh, will birth. And so Snyder, what they're doing is a couple of things. Uh, one of the things that can happen is the grand jury can bring more charges than what was reported to us. So it's, it's the tactic that the FBI use all the time you squeeze the people at the bottom and then they'll squeeze the person above them and then they'll squeeze the next person. So the goal is to get all these people to start talking and telling on each other. That's part of the tactic. But I believe that, you know, I, I agree with you that the charges are, are not sufficient. I'm hoping that there will be more charges forthcoming once the, the proceedings start. But the biggest thing that all of us can do is to keep talking about the case, continuing to demand justice for Flint. Uh, hashtag Flint is still not fixed. Uh, continuing uh, to encourage people to donate water relief because Flint still has about 500 uh, uh, pipes that they have to replace. So all the pipes have not been replaced. And then this is the other thing that we've got to remind people. The majority of the money that is going to be allocated through the settlement is not going to the people of Flint. It's going to compensate uh, different programs and departments. It's going to uh, reimburse the city and the state for payment and attorneys. So it's very little of the money that actually is going directly to service the people of Flint. And a big portion of the money that's going to the children is insufficient in terms of providing them special education services. So they're not even serious about providing real adequate resolution, I mean, re uh, solutions for the babies. And so to me, you've got to keep talking about it and use your network. Uh, you guys have airways, you have influence, you have technology. 
And right now is the perfect time to activate it because it's my understanding the proceedings start on the 19th. So this is gonna be a busy week for many proceedings. We've got the 19th uh, with the start of the, the Flint water crisis uh, hearing. We've got the 20th with hopefully the swearing in of at least some civility in elected politics in DC. And then on January the 21st here in Detroit, you have the, uh, the civil suit against the city of Detroit as it pertains to shutting off water and how it was racially applied. And so uh, there's a lot of work for us to do, but if we can continue to talk about those things and inform others and encourage them to get active, uh, the judges I believe will be very sensitive to the fact that the community has not forgotten about Flint. And so um, we'll wrap with some questions. Um, Deja, do you have questions at all about um, the Snyder case or uh, anything uh, pertaining to um, you know the charges? You there, Deja? Okay, we'll go to Jaira. Jaira, do you have questions at all about uh, the the Snyder case? Um. Not really. I'm. I'm more. Yeah, like I said, I'm um, more interested in learning about it. Um, I will continue to do my research on everything to you know know more information about it, even from a technical, you know, technology, technical. Oh my gosh. Uh, from a technology standpoint. Um, but it, it's really captivating, really like, though, isn't it, Jaira? All yeah, just listening it's, to it's, it, right? Yeah, it's crazy how just how, you know, how the government and just people in general are trying to keep everything a secret when it's when it should be, you know, exposed to help the better good of the community and everyone. But you know what is even interesting about what you just said is that everything that the government does is public information. So what they're doing in secret is what the issue is. That's what. That's why it shouldn't even be a case. It should be an automatic slam on the table or whatever you want to call it that the judge does. You know? Definitely. And what's going to make this really important is that it is going to set legal precedents. Uh, so, it, you know, the people of Flint and a, a large part of the, the activists understand that this fight is not just about them, but it's actually leveling up the U.S. government in terms of these issues of toxicity and, and disparities that are playing out on our communities more harshly than anywhere else. Uh, so I really believe that some of the work that we've done is going to move some issues this year. We've already heard from the Biden administration that within their first 100 days, uh, they've made a commitment to make some uh, effort to assure the American public of uh, access to water affordability. Uh, we also know that some of the ingenuity that we've looked into like the court uh, and uh, Jahad, you'll appreciate this. The Cork is a community water and energy uh, resource center. And so it's the use of different kinds of technology to be able to remediate wastewater so that it could be reused for, you know, gray water for commercial use. Uh, it can also create uh, thermal energy and electricity along with the fertilizer can be, I mean, the human waste can be turned into fertilizer uh, and so it would create four different streams of income. And so those are the things that we don't get to talk a lot about because people are so busy uh, 
you know, very interested in our trauma as it relates to water. And at the same time, our communities have had to be innovative enough to know that we've got to move past trauma into transformation. But I do believe surveillance is going to be a bigger piece because what we're also hearing is that uh, one of the, the laws that were passed by one of our former legislators, uh, I'm sorry, not legislator, he was a congressperson, uh, he actually initiated a law that makes it illegal to protest at a water uh, processing plant. Now, why in the world, after serving in Congress, the only piece of legislation that you got passed was to make it declared a terrorist act if you protest at a water processing plant? So to us, we see that as just another tactic of them laying the groundwork to really try to stop uh, any kind of real organizing or protesting against what we believe is gonna be more privatization of water and the increasing cost and the denial of access to it. So and we're gonna need you, Jai, to keep an eye on them. Yeah, and, and uh, Brittany- I definitely will. And Brittany, did you um, have any final question about uh, the case at all, the Snyder case? Uh, like I said, not really. I'm just uh, I'm just sitting by and, and watching everything. I really that's that's one thing that I did want to ask. It's not so much about the case. I mean, at this point, we just have to wait for me is just like the juicy gossip. Like, how did Harvard come about thinking he deserved a humanitarian award? I'm still confused about that. But, but did you see, this is the part though, did you see how the, how quickly the community mobilized against that and shut that down? That too, that was amazing. That's the, probably the one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen. Like social media, like all the social organizations, they yes. went in. <laughs> and then the beauty of it is a lot of people don't know the backdrop story to that is uh, we got word of it. And Naira Sharif from Flint went to school with Art Reyes. So Art actually graduated from Harvard's uh, School of Policy, Public Policy. But then also my, uh, one of my co-directors for public health, uh, I mean, sorry, for our community research collective, Dr. Nadia Gaber, she's a graduate of Harvard and Yale and Oxford. So she reached out through the Alumni Association. So it was it was Michiganders and, and uh, and folks from Flint, Detroit, and that have relationships all over the country and the globe just like went bananas on social media. But then the beauty of it was they canceled him and then they brought in Art and Naira and myself to Harvard to give the, the talk to the students. Uh, so Harvard did a whole lot of cleanup Aww. trying to redeem themselves after that. And we had a ball. Uh, the Black Student Association ended up hosting us there. That is so cool. Like, wow. that's wow. amazing. So you got the inside scoop. That's super <laughs> that's cool. Amazing. Thank you. Well, I I'm just sad right now. I'm full. Um, we got to bring you back um, in a little bit after uh, there's been some progress on some of these um, projects to get updates on these projects. But just wanted to uh, extend more gratitude. Uh, like Brittany said, you coming on this uh, MLK Day Eve and, um, you know, just sharing with us uh, 
you know, the history of uh, the, the Detroit and Flint water struggle, the work that is currently being done and also how folks can get involved. And so just uh, one more time, can you just give how people can um, connect with you? Definitely. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, if you're having a water issue, you need water relief or any support pertaining to getting your water restored, you can reach us at our water rights hotline, 1-800, uh, I'm sorry, 1-800-42-WATER, 1-844-42-WATER, 1-844-42-WATER. Uh, then if you want to reach out to us or look at any of our research or data, it's open sourced. And it's on our website, wethepeopleofdetroit.com, wethepeopleofdetroit.com. Uh, and then also just would uh, encourage folks uh, to continue to, to look for information that, that you can share with others. We also have some COVID-19 uh, information and data and research on that page. Please share that. There are resources to help people with everything from uh getting repairs done to their water system, to uh, if you need burial assistance or car insurance assistance, uh, a lot of that relief is available right now through Wayne Metro. It's about $8 million they've got to shift in a very short period of time. And we don't want one Detroiter not to get that money. Well, thank you. So um, Jaira, did you wanna leave folks with any uh, word? I just want everyone to stay safe. Make sure, again, to not click on random links that um, has been going around lately, especially if you get um, invited into like random group chats on your phone. Make sure you don't respond into it. Just make sure if you don't know what it is, don't mess with it and just delete it from your phone or else you will be in trouble. And Brittany, any um, words you want to uh, give before uh, we wrap? Mama Monica, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your time with us tonight. It was a blast. Um, I wish you well. Uh, thank you for your continued efforts, for the efforts that you haven't even put in yet. I thank you for those. And um, I hope you have a good and blessed week. Uh, you as well, Jaira and Piper. Uh, I saw Deja had to drop off, so sending her love. And um, all of our listeners, um, hope you guys are doing well. And as Jairus says, staying safe. And yeah, that's it. Uh, uh, Mama Monica, any uh, just parting words before we go? I know you've said plenty, but if there's anything else before we go. Just deep gratitude for Piper Carter and the Piper Carter podcast and all of you. Uh, thank you, Deja. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you. Jai, uh, it has been just my honor, as I stated before, to spend this time with you. Uh, it definitely given me a lot of life and a lot of love. And thank you. I guess for me, just again, deep gratitude to you, Mama Monica, for your work, your steadfastness, um, for fighting for us and your teachings and you're just continuing to invest. And thank you, Brittany, for all your brilliance and your research and all you brought to uh, make this a really dynamic podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Jaira, for your research and what you've brought to the podcast and for sharing that great story with us. And thank you, Deja, uh, you know, for bringing your light uh, to this podcast. And um, thank you to all the listeners who continue listening. I wanna let y'all know 
that um, our listenership is growing and we, we really appreciate you. Uh, it's 2021 and we want to level up. We want to make sure that we're giving back to our listeners um, some things that we're going to be doing this year. Uh, we want to dig deeper. We want to engage with you a little better. And, you know, in all transparency, we want to find a way that, uh, you know, we continue to, uh, to share, you know, valuable information with you. And um, this year we'll be creating our Patreon and ways that you can uh, monetarily support us. And also with crypto, we will uh, be continuing to engage with you on social media. I want y'all to know that um, we currently have uh, 500 loyal listeners across our platforms every single month. But total, we've had uh, consistently 25,000 listeners over this past year. And so wow. a lot of people listening to what's going on was uh, in Detroit. And so we're really uh, looking to uh, engage with all 25,000 of you. <laughs> and we're asking you to share, share this podcast, share this info, amplify our message. Um, and also shouts out to Kari Frazier, uh, the owner of Detroit is Different. And we are on the Detroit is Different podcast network. And go to DetroitIsDifferent.net to check out all of the other podcasts. Of course, you can listen to us on all streaming platforms. And if you want to connect with us on social media, we're on Instagram, pc.podcast. We're on Facebook, pc.podcast. And join our Facebook group, which is the Piper Carter Podcast group. And so uh, we appreciate you we will see you next week. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and always listen on Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Store, and Spotify. Places where TB is common as TB Cause foreign based companies go and get greedy The type of cats who pollute the whole shoreline Have it purified and sell it for a dollar twenty-five